Well, good morning. Good to see you and worship with you today on this uh, holiday weekend. We got some good weather. Hopefully, you got some uh, good plans to be able to spend some time with friends and family. If you haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm John, one of the pastors here at North Park, and I'm excited to open up the scriptures with you uh, this morning. Uh, this is uh, part three of a short series that we're doing called Cross Culture, and uh, today we're going to talk about being weak enough to be strong. When we come to understand the depth of God's love for us, that changes us. And as Paul is writing this letter to the church at Corinth, he's looking at the culture in Corinth and how different it is from the life that we as Christ followers should live as our life is shaped by this incredible love that God has demonstrated for us by sacrificing his son on the cross. And when we look, our culture isn't that much different than the culture in Corinth. And we too are encouraged to let God's love, especially that love demonstrated on the cross, reshape us. Uh, I want to start by just asking, uh, how many of you guys like baseball? Anybody? All right. How many of you guys have ever played baseball? All right. You like to watch little kids play baseball? That's so much fun. I've got a couple of uh, grandsons right now. We play out in the front yard and uh, was thinking about a kid that I heard about that uh, wanted to play some baseball, but he was by himself. So he went out in the backyard, and his parents kind of watched him go out the door. He's got his bat and his ball. <clears throat> he's kind of talking to himself. And he's like, all right, I am the greatest hitter in the world. And he tosses the ball up, and he swings. Strike one, he says. But he's undaunted. So he's like, I am the greatest hitter in the world. And he throws the ball up again, and he swings. And he misses. Strike two. So he looks at the bat. Looks at the ball, you see, like he's seen the ball players at the park do. He spits on his hands, rubs them together. He says one more time, I am the greatest hitter in the world. Tosses the ball up and he swings and he misses. Strike three. He's like, wow, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. (laughs) Sometimes our attitude can really make a difference, can it? How we view our circumstance and the attitude that we bring into those circumstances can make a difference. But is a positive attitude enough? As we go through really hard and difficult circumstances, is that realistic to think if I can only think positively, that will be enough? Or do we need something more substantive substantive to go along with a different attitude so that we can handle adversity and suffering that we experience in a way that we can really make it through. You know, adversity and suffering is a topic that our culture often doesn't know how to handle. Uh, Tim Keller has written an excellent book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And in it, he says this, that one of the most important things to learn is how to maintain a life of purpose in the midst of pain and adversity. And then he examines some studies done by sociologists that conclude that in our current Contemporary secular culture here in the United States, we have one of the weakest and worst cultures in helping us deal with adversity and suffering. And I think it's important for us to understand that. I had a professor uh, who wrote a book on understanding God's will and looked at the issue of culture. And he would ask this question, does a fish know that it's wet? And sometimes we may not realize how much our culture is influencing us. So I think it's helpful for us to understand that we live in a time and in a culture that isn't the best at helping us deal with suffering and adversity. 
And the result is that we are more shocked and undone by suffering than our ancestors were and then more people in other parts of the world. And to demonstrate this, he quotes a a Dr. Paul Brandt, who was a pioneering orthopedic surgeon treating leprosy patients. And he started his practice in India and then came to the United States. And here's what he realized about patients in the United States. I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. And that is in part, at least because we have become a more secular culture. If this material world is all that there is, and life basically is about me being able to choose that which would make me happy, then when it comes to suffering, it can have no meaningful part in my life. So it's to be avoided at all costs. And it is to be minimized as much as possible. But sometimes, as Tim Keller says, pain and suffering is unavoidable and irreducible. It can't be minimized. But every once in a while, we run into some people who are in unchangeable and unalterable circumstances, and they get to the place where they're willing and able to receive it. Their circumstances, their pain, their illnesses, their losses, and their disabilities as coming from the hand of a God that they trust. And one of those individuals is the Apostle Paul. And he and others would say that there is a greater purpose for pain and suffering that we can embrace. And in the process, we can find extraordinary strength that we can delight in. And the Apostle Paul, we've been looking at the last couple of weeks in Second Corinthians, the last couple of chapters, and we've been looking at some of the most personal biographical material that we have from the Apostle Paul. The church at Corinth was a church that he invested much in. And yet there were people coming in and trying to take those people away from him, to lead them away from Jesus and the teaching that he had given. And he's deeply troubled by this. And they're questioning whether he is a legitimate apostle. And so my prayer is today that as we look at the Apostle Paul one last time as a part of this series, that we'll find hope and help to be able to respond a little bit more like Paul and to experience a little bit more grace and peace when we go through adversity, and especially adversity that we don't have any control over. So I want to invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'd like to remind you that the Bible is really a library of books, and we're going to be in that section right there with the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where you can look at the table of contents. The verses will be up on the screen. I just remind you that the city of Corinth was one of the cities that Paul went to as a traveling missionary. In this map, you can see as Christianity spread, Paul went to... Corinth, and that was right across from Ephesians. As he established a church there that you can read about in Acts chapter 18, he's writing back now to this group of Christ followers who are the church that he loves and cares about. And this morning we're going to look at Paul's experience here in 2 Corinthians 12 in three movements. We're going to look first at a temptation, and then we're going to look at a protection, and then we'll look at an affirmation. So first let's look at this temptation. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 1, Paul says, I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. Paul is in this uh, kind of debate with these super apostles. 
he calls them. People who are questioning whether he is legitimate as an apostle and has any authority. And they want him to defend himself and to share all of these great things that would uh, meet the requirements of being an apostle as authority. He doesn't really want to talk about that. He doesn't want to boast or brag about what God has done in his life. But he says, I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I'll go, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. And then he says, I know a man in Christ. He doesn't even really want to say, this is what happened in my life. So he's kind of just saying, there was a guy that this happened to 14 years ago. I was caught up to the third heaven. And whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows. And I know that this man, again, really talking about himself, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows I was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. So this is an experience that Paul had. He doesn't even know if he was in his body, out of his body, but God took him up and expressed to him things that he's not even able to explain. But this is part of his unique experience with God. And he says, I will boast about a man like that, but I'll not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. So Paul receives this experience that he has with great humility. And I just caution us, too, that we have people today who say, I had this incredible experience and I went to heaven. Even some have said, I've gone to hell and I've seen things. Or God did some incredible stuff and they want to tell us all about it and they want to print a book and make a movie. Paul says, God did this incredible thing for me and I don't even really want to speak about it. I don't want to brag or boast about any of that. And so, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth. So he's like, I could say this stuff. I've had more experiences and better experiences than you, super apostles. But he doesn't want to come across that way. But the middle of verse 6, but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted. Paul has this desire that however he shares his life and his ministry, he doesn't want people to think more highly of him. He wants people to think more highly of God. Verse 7, or because these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited. So he's got this desire not to talk about all this because he doesn't want other people to put him on a pedestal. But we're going to look at another experience that he has. And what this verse is beginning to help us see is that there's a danger that he could become conceited about these incredible things that God has done in his life. Now, conceited means to be excessively proud of oneself. Excessively proud of oneself. You see, there was a danger that Paul could think that his life and ministry was about him, that he was this great dude. And what God was doing was because of him. We get a little more insight into this. We go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, as he started out his letter. There he said, verse 8, 2 Corinthians 1, 8, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles that we experienced in the province of Asia as they were doing this missions work. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. And if you read the accounts of Paul's missionary work, many times it looked like this was the end for Paul, that he was going to be killed, that he was left for dead. He said, Indeed, verse 9, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, 
that we might not become conceited, that we might not become proud, depending on, only on ourselves, but on God. And by the way, this God, he raises people from the dead. Whoa! So Paul is beginning to understand that there's things that happens in his life and his ministry that are there for the sole purpose of making sure that he depends on a God, a God who is powerful, a God who can raise people from the dead, rather than just depending on himself and his own gifts and abilities. And so Paul's special experiences that he has are part of his qualifications. Chapter 12, he's saying, okay, I I could boast about this. I don't really want to talk about this, but I've had dreams and visions, and one time I was caught up to have this special communication with God. I can't even express what it was about. I could do that, but I really only want to talk about my weaknesses because my qualifications for ministry also provide an incredible temptation that I could become filled with pride and think that my life and my ministry is about me rather than God. So let me ask you a question this morning. How big a deal is pride? Does it really that matter if we start to get a little full of ourselves? Does it really matter if I start to depend on myself rather than God? Well, let's remember a few things about pride. Pride was a part of the very first sin. And when I say the first sin, you might think Adam and Eve, but there was a sin that took place before that. In Isaiah 14, verse 13, it's written about a king and a ruler who lived then, but it also is referring back to Lucifer, Satan himself where the first sin was committed. And it says, For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. Pride was at the heart of the very first sin where Satan, who we shouldn't forget, is just a created angel, a created being by God. God and Satan are evil, trying to see who wins. God created the devil. And his first sin was... I want to be above God. And pride was at the heart of it. Pride was a part of the second sin. As we look at Adam and Eve and their sin, First John gives us the language of part of the issue was the pride of life. Knowing better than God and wanting what I want. It's at the core of all sin. Did you realize that? Pride is at the core of all sin. Sin. You remember in Isaiah chapter 53, he gives us the illustration of a sheep. And he says, but he, Jesus, was pierced for our rebellion. As we swell up in pride and say, I want to go my own way. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Pride is at the core of all sin. Pride is hated by God. Proverbs 8, 13. 8.13 tells us, God says, I hate pride and arrogance. Think about that word, hate. It's not that God is like, well, that's not very attractive. I don't really care for that. I hate pride because pride puts us in a place that only God belongs. He hates it. And James chapter 4 tells us that he opposes the proud. Which of us wants to go against God? Which of us wants God to go against us? That's what pride does in our life. It puts us on the opposite side of God. He opposes it. And Proverbs 16, 18 tells us that it's destructive. Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. 
So when we're going to look at Paul, and God's going to do some things to help him make sure he doesn't become conceited, this isn't just a like, oh, that'd be pretty cool. Or, wow, maybe that's a good idea. Pride was involved in the first sin, the second sin. It's at the core of all sin. And God hates it, and he opposes it. And it will lead to destruction in our life. John Stott, pastor and writer and theologian, said this, At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy. And humility, our greatest friend. Our life and our Christian service is to be for God's glory, not our own. In the words of John the baptizer, Jesus must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. And so Paul has these experiences that make him qualified to be an apostle, to fulfill God's calling in his life, while at the same time it presents a dangerous and very serious temptation, that of conceit and pride. And as I studied this this week, it hit me. What would I be willing to do to protect myself from becoming conceited and full of pride? What would I be willing to do? And then it hit me that there's a more serious question. How far do I want God to go to protect me from becoming conceited and proud? What would I be willing to ask or allow God to do? Because it's exactly what happens with Paul. We're going to look now, we've seen the temptation, now we look at the protection. And it's a protection offered not because Paul said, wow, I really need to guard my life from temptation of conceit and pride. It's something that God does because he wants to protect Paul. If we look at verse 7, the rest of it says, therefore, in order to keep me, right? Keep me, that's protection. In order to protect me from becoming conceited, I was given, and I put in there, by God. In the original language, it's very obvious, this uh, kind of, the way that this is put together. Paul is given something, but he's given this by God. All right, so protection. I want to protect you from becoming conceited and proud. What is God going to give him? God's going to give him something to help him with that. It's not what we might expect. I was given by God a thorn in my flesh. That doesn't sound like a very good gift, does it? I'm going to give you a thorn. And that word thorn is like a sharp wooden stick that's used to impale things. I'm going to give you that. That doesn't seem like the kind of gift that we would want. He also says, well, he says, in my flesh. Now, flesh is used in two different ways by Paul. Sometimes it speaks about our sinful nature. Other times it just speaks about our physical body. And I think here, Paul is saying, I was given a thorn in my flesh, in my physical body. We don't really know what this thorn is. Some think it's something physical. It might have been bad eyesight or epilepsy, a speech impediment. Some even think malaria. It also could be something spiritual. Look at the next description. All right, Remember, who's giving this to Paul? You can say it out loud. Who's giving it to him? God. And why is he giving it to him? For protection, right? So he gives him a thorn in the flesh, and he describes it as a messenger of Satan. 
Again, reminding us that Satan only fulfills God's purposes. But from Satan's perspective, he has a purpose that he wants to accomplish with whatever this bad thing is. But it could have been something spiritual as well. Maybe the false teachers in the church. Maybe depression. Maybe Paul's own temptations, something. And we're not sure if this messenger of Satan is literal or it's a metaphor. Maybe like we say, oh, that hurts like the devil. You guys know what that means anyway? What does that mean, it hurts like the devil? We don't really know, right? But this messenger of Satan, it is used a couple other places. But we're really not sure what this thorn is. And I think Paul wanted it that way. If Paul had mentioned specifically what it was, maybe we would think it only applies to people who have that exact same thorn. But as Paul writes it and leaves it open, then guess who this applies to? All of us. All of us can have a thorn in our flesh because it's not specific. So I just remind you again, this isn't something that Paul is coming up with. This is something that God gives him, and it's uncomfortable, it's debilitating, and it's constant. This is God's gift to Paul to keep him from becoming conceited and it tormented him is the last descriptor that we get it tormented him some of your translations will say it buffeted him it literally means to strike with your fist this thorn in the flesh beat paul up it wore him down at times it discouraged him at times and paul did what you and i would do if we experienced that kind of thing in our life he pleaded with god please take this away Not only is it discouraging, not only is it beating me down, but from his perspective, I'm sure it was, this hinders my ministry. I want to do this work for you, God. And this hinders me from doing that. Verse 8, we read that three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Now I take from the three different times that it means like three different seasons. Three different times where things got really bad and Paul pleaded with God. Would you please take this away from me? Please take it away. And I know that some of you, just like me, have pleaded often with God. Would you please take away this illness or this hardship from my life? Would you take it away from my family or friend's life? Would you please heal them? Would you please make things better? Or maybe we pleaded for God to change a circumstance related to our family or our workplace, our church our neighborhoods, and our communities. God, would you please change these situations in our country and even in the world? God, would you please change this? Would you please take this away? This is something that we consider a thorn that beats us up and discourages us. And some of you wondered or some of you have been told, you know the reason that you're not getting any answers or results? It's because you don't have enough faith. And we feel this tremendous guilt And sometimes it comes from people who are skeptics or maybe just begin to doubt. And we say, you know what, you're praying and you keep asking. And the reason things don't change is because God's not listening to you. Or God's not there. He doesn't care. And we begin to wonder what is happening. But what if God doesn't always bring relief from our thorns by removing them? What if God has a different way of bringing bringing relief? Because that's what we see in the life of Paul, that God doesn't always bring relief from these thorns by removing them. 
So we have a temptation of becoming conceited. We have a protection that God gives him a thorn in his flesh. But we also have a tremendous affirmation. Look at verse 9. But he said to me. First of all, I know that some of you, that would be wonderful, you say. If only I could hear God speak. In these desperate situations where we're pleading with God to change the circumstances or take it away, if we could only hear God speak to us, it seems like it would bring so much relief. And God does speak to Paul and he says, My grace is sufficient for you. Three times Paul said, God, please, please take this away. And apparently the third time God made it very clear Paul, the answer is no. Because I have a better plan. I have a better life and a better ministry planned for you than me just removing that thorn. My grace is sufficient. It's sufficient enough to see you through. Now today, God doesn't normally talk to us directly. But if you have asked God and you are asking God to change a circumstance and he has not removed or changed a difficult circumstance in your life, it's not that you necessarily lack faith. But God's grace is sufficient for you. That's God's personal affirmation for you. Whatever your need is in the middle of your thorn, God can meet it. And his grace never runs Famous pastor Charles Spurgeon told of an evening when he was riding home after a heavy day's work. He felt weary and depressed. When it suddenly as lightning flashed, he thought of 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for thee. And he said, I should think it is, Lord. And he burst out laughing. He said that it seemed to make unbelief so absurd. It was as though like some little fish, being very thirsty, was troubled about drinking the river dry. And the river said, drink away, little fish. My stream is sufficient for you. Or it seemed that after the 70 years of plenty, a mouse feared that it would die of famine. And Joseph might say, cheer up, little mouse. My granaries are sufficient for thee. Or a man way up on a mountain saying to himself, I fear I shall exhaust all of the oxygen in the atmosphere. But the earth might say, breathe away, O man, and fill thy lungs forever. My atmosphere is sufficient for thee. Little faith will bring our souls to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to us. Paul says, God, please take this away. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. It will never run out. Now, why would God do it this way in Paul's life? Why would he do it in your life and mine? To protect us against spiritual pride. To help us depend on God. And the next statement in the verse says, God's power is made perfect, mature in weakness. God's power is made perfect in weakness. In the NRV commentary, the author said, Weaknesses cannot be escaped simply by thinking differently. It's great that a little kid can change from being the greatest hitter in the world to being the greatest pitcher in the world. And we need to be optimistic. We need to have a positive attitude. But that in and of itself doesn't really change our circumstances or help us. We need something more substantive than that. 
So it cannot be escaped simply by thinking differently. What is needed is not more willpower, but the power of God's grace. And so I ask you this morning, are you weak enough to be strong? Are you weak enough to be strong? Because where God's ability begins, it begins where my inability ends. God's ability begins where my inability ends. I was thinking about little kids this week. I'm not sure why. But there was another little kid playing in the sandbox. He had some cars and he's got his shovels and all those trucks and things. And so he started building little roads and tunnels. And as he was digging, he ran into a big rock. was underneath the sand. So he started digging around it, and he uncovered it. Now he's got this huge rock, and he wants to get it out of his sandbox. And so he starts using his feet, and he's pushing, and he's giving it all he's got and moving it. And he finally got it to move all the way to the edge of the sandbox. And now, box, and now he was trying to get it up over that railing. And he couldn't get it. As he pushed, and he used his feet, and just he would get it up, and it would fall back down. And it fell a couple times, and it hurt his fingers, and he began to cry. Well, his dad was watching him through the window. And so he came outside. He said, son, why didn't you use all the strength that you had? He said, daddy, I did. I I tried to do it as best as I could. But you didn't use all the strength you had because you didn't ask me. And so he bent over and he picked up the rock and he moved it out of the sandbox. When we have these unavoidable and unchangeable circumstances in our life, it does help to remember that God blesses and desires humility. And to keep us humble and dependent on him, he may give us some difficult ongoing situations that we have no control over. And he is pleased when we ask him, please, God, help me get the rock out of the sandbox. He's pleased when we ask, God, I know I can't do this, but you can. Please take away this thorn. But we also must remember that he will not always relieve our thorn by removing it. And if he chooses not to remove it, he'll use that same strength by his grace to meet our need and help us to endure. He promises to meet our needs and to give us the strength we need to endure it for his glory. And so we do have a choice to make. This is incredible to see what the Apostle Paul does next. The rest of verse 9. Because God's grace is sufficient... And because God's power is made perfect in weakness, look what Paul says then. Therefore, I will boast. Remember, he didn't want to boast about himself and his own experiences. But he says, this I'm willing to boast about. And I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. So that Christ's power may rest on me. That word rest is when somebody's traveling and they set up camp, they pitch their tent. You want God's power to pitch its tent around you and to be part of your life? Then we boast in our weaknesses. And we do that for Christ's sake, not our sake. When we think about difficulties and trials, usually we struggle with one of two things about God. Is God great? Is he really powerful enough? Is he sovereign? Does he really rule over everything? Is he really powerful enough to change my circumstance? And if we believe that he is, then we have to come to grips with, is God good? Is he not only great, but is he good? Because if he could change our circumstance and he's not, 
Is he good? Does he have other purposes? And so I suggest this morning that if we believe that God is great and we believe that he could change our circumstance and we are asking him to and he doesn't, then we can choose to believe that he is good. And that whatever he's allowing to stay in our life is for our protection. He may have other purposes, but one of them is it's for our protection against conceit and spiritual pride, where we would begin to rely on ourselves or to think that life and our ministry is all about us. But it comes with an affirmation. My grace is sufficient for you. And so we have that choice. If we believe that God could change our circumstances and he doesn't, then we have the choice to believe that he's good. He's doing it to protect us, and he gives us this affirmation. And that's why he says in verse 10, For Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I hope this morning some of you feel this great relief that you don't have to cover up, you don't have to hide, you don't have to lie about all of your weaknesses. And your struggles in life and ministry. Paul says that we can embrace them. And they actually become the platform out of which we minister to other people. And we serve and we bring glory to God. And if that sounds crazy to you, I just want to remind you that your salvation and mine and the salvation of the whole world came about as a result of a very similar decision. Remember Jesus, the night before he died goes to the garden, he invites the disciples to come with him, and he goes off and prays. And he's wrestling with his heavenly father about this thorn, if you will, this thorn in his flesh that he's going to have to go to the cross and die there. And not only die this horrible, humiliating death, but the fellowship with God his father is going to be broken, and he's going to take all of the punishment of the world on him. In Matthew 26, 39, he said this. It went a little farther, and he bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Do you hear the echoes of Paul's words in there? Pleaded with God, please take it away. Jesus says, if there's any other way, God, please take this away. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. Yet, if this is what you want, if you're not going to remove this from me, then I submit myself to your will, to your protection, to your care. Jesus going to the cross is the prime example of God's power being perfected in weakness. And I just ask you this morning, are you experiencing God's grace in the same way that Jesus and Paul did? God's ability begins where our inability ends. Are you weak enough to be strong? I'll leave you with one last image. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 7, Paul would say this, We now have this light shining in our hearts, the truth of the gospel, but we ourselves are like fragile jars of clay. When you have something valuable, it's a treasure, what kind of container do you store it in to keep it safe? Something made of clay that can be broken easily? Something fragile, or do you normally store it in something very durable and safe? We would even say a safe, right? We store it in a safe. We lock it up. We want something that's durable. Paul says we've got this incredible life that we have in Christ, but we have it in something very fragile, a jar of clay. 
We contain this great treasure. Why? This makes it clear that our great power is from who? Our great power is from God and not from ourselves. Right? The jar of clay is fragile. Fragile. Easily broken. You and I are nothing special. We're the pinnacle of God's creation, but we are weak and fragile, and yet we have this special life from God that lives inside of us. As you came in today, hopefully you received a little piece of a clay pot with the verse 2 Corinthians 4, 7 on it. If not, as you leave, maybe our ushers will be at the door. You can grab one from one of the baskets. My hope is simply that you'll take that little piece of clay, put it somewhere you see it over the next week or two, and when you see it, I want you to think of three different people. I want you to just pray for yourself and say, God, Will you help me to glory in my weaknesses because I want your power to be seen in my life. And then pray that same prayer for someone else. God, would you help this person to glory in their weaknesses so your power will be seen in them. And then thirdly, will you pray for your church? We want to be a church where we glory in our weaknesses so that God's power rests on us. So the next couple of weeks, just put that somewhere where you can see it. God, please help us. Help me. Help someone else in particular. Help our church to glory in our weaknesses. Because we have this great treasure in a fragile jar clay. Clay jar, sorry. And that makes it so that everybody can see that the power that we have is from God. And if you're here today... And you're wrestling with hardship and difficulty. I just ask you, what are you willing to do to protect yourself from conceit and pride? And more than that, what are you willing to allow God to do? We're never helpless. I know sometimes in our situations we feel like it's helpless. But we're never helpless because we can believe that God could change our circumstances if he wanted to. He's great. He's got the power. He can do it. But we also can choose to believe that he's good. And so we have the option to receive that from God. God, thank you for this protection in my life to help me not to be conceited. And thank you for your affirmation that your grace is sufficient. Would you just read this uh, statement with me one last time? Would you get, read it out loud with me? God's ability begins where my ability ends. All right, one more time, if you would. God's ability begins where our ability ends. Not everyone is weak enough to be strong. Did you know that? Not everybody's willing to glory in their weakness. Are you weak enough to be strong? I pray that God will help you to do that. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you so much for your care for us. Thank you for Jesus who makes salvation possible. God, we struggle to do this because we are a proud people. Would you teach us this morning to glory more in our weakness? Not because it's fun, not because the thing that we struggle with in and of itself is something to be desired, but simply for the one reason that when we do that, your power shows up. God, we want to be a people who experience your power in our life, and we want other people to see it for your honor and glory. Would you do that in 
and through us, individually, as families, and as a church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.